Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. First Timothy chapter 1. Beginning in verse 18, and the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the word of the Lord. Mark Dever, the pastor of Capitol Hill Hill Baptist Church and author of the series of books on the nine marks of the healthy church, he says this, Biblical church discipline is simple obedience to God and a simple confession that we need help. We cannot live the Christian life alone. Our purpose in church discipline is positive for the individual disciplined, for other Christians as they see the real danger of sin, and for the health of the whole, for the church as a whole, and for the corporate witness of the church to those outside. Most of all, our holiness is to reflect the holiness of God. It should mean something to be the member of the church, not for our pride's sake, but for God's namesake. Biblical church discipline is a mark of a healthy church. Well, since you are now in 1 Timothy, please turn with me to to chapter 3, because I want to look at that really briefly in just a second. But as you know, we're in this series on the biblical plan for the church and for life. And this series is centered on the letter to 1 Timothy. Now, with all the books in the Bible, why are we going through a book like, well, this? Well, the reason is that we are in this series because we as a church need to grow in our understanding of the church. We need to grow in our understanding of our theology of the church. Since we are Christians, we are called to be a part of the church and to do life as a church, which is the body of Christ. We ought to understand what the Bible has to say about the church. And so we've come to 1 Timothy to ask some important questions like, what is the church and what is the church for? And what is the church to do? And what we've discovered is the fact that there is no shortage of opinions about what the church is in the world around us. Everyone has an opinion about the church, but we are not concerned with man's opinions about the church. What we want to know is what the Bible says, what God's Word says about the church, because it is His church. As we've seen in 1 Timothy chapter 3, in verse 14, Paul says this to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The truth is we all need to know and embrace and build our lives on this truth that the church belongs to God. It is His church. I know I've said this before, 
but it bears repeating and, and it bears us reminding ourselves continually the church belongs to God. It is His church. It is His family. It belongs to Him. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to Him. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to us as a group. It is His church. And because of that, right, and because we've been redeemed by Him, we belong to Him. We are made members of His church, which means we are part of His church, right? So understand this. We belong to it. It doesn't belong to us. We really need to understand the distinction of that as we move forward. We as members of the church belong to the church because, because it's God's church. The church doesn't belong to us. We belong to it. If we are believers, if we truly have been born again, we belong to the church. The 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith has actually something to say about this. In chapter 26, in a chapter titled The Church, in the second paragraph reads, All people throughout the world who profess the faith of the gospel and obedience to God through Christ in keeping with the gospel are and may be called visible saints as long as they do not destroy their own profession by any foundational errors or unholy living. All local congregations ought to be made up of these. The church is not a building made of concrete or wood. The church is a living organism made up of believers, those who are truly in Christ. We have all been individually brought together by God to be the church. As Peter says in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you, yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a special house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And if that's not enough to convince you, then what about the Apostle Paul in the, when he wrote a letter to the Ephesian church years before he wrote 1 Timothy? He said, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are all individuals are being brought together by God Himself to be the church, which is His house, His family. And we are brought together to do the things that He has called us to do. You see, the church doesn't belong to us. We belong to it. And as such, we are a part of it. And the reason why I emphasize this is because culturally, so many Christians simply do not understand this truth about the church. This is why for so many people that the church is little more than a social club. It's a place to get plugged into. It's a place to meet new people. It's a place to get involved in, in, in service projects for the community. And their commitment to the church is simply based on their activity level and their interest. And when the church doesn't fill that need, they just move on. For others, the church is an entertainment venue. It's a place where you go to get an experience. It's about listening to great music and uplifting messages. It's about being encouraged before you leave. It's all about how you feel. 
And their commitment to the church is based on what they're receiving from the church, like consumers. And if they feel uplifted, they'll come back. And if they feel entertained, they will stay connected. But once they get bored, and once they get challenged or even convicted, they move on. For others, the church is a place to get their physical needs met. People come to church because we give them food. People come to church because they're looking for caring people who, who have a hard time to say no when, they, when you ask them to help move. It happens, right? People come to church looking for gas money. People come to church to get plugged in because they realize that there are a bunch of loving, generous people who will bend over backwards to help. But the problem is the moment we can't help or the moment we finally figure out what's going on and insist that people take responsibility for their own lives, they move on. For others, the church is about a community to belong to. It's about belonging. It's about being accepted. I've known people who've come here and who've been been here for, for a long time at different points, not because of what we believe, not that they believe the things we believe, but simply they just feel accepted and loved. And understand, I think that it's good that they feel accepted and loved. We want everyone to walk in the doors and feel accepted and loved, right? But I can't make those kind of people members of the church because they're not part of the body. They might visit, they might attend, but they're not members. In fact, a couple of years ago, someone wanted to become a member of the church, right? but they didn't have the foundational thing. They didn't believe the foundational things of the gospel. And I gave them a copy of our statement of faith and said, hey, you need to read this. And then we need to talk about this. And they refused to agree to, to say they would believe those things. And I couldn't bring them forward as a member because they weren't here. Right? They weren't here to be a believing member in the church. They just simply were here because they just felt accepted and wanted to be a part of the community. Right? Now understand, the church is a community. It is a loving community. It's something that we've prided ourselves on being. But that is not the end of what we are to be. Right? That's not the reason why we exist. And more than that, being a member of the church, that being a member of the church is not a God-given right. Yes, I said that you heard me correctly. Being a member of the church is not a right. It is a God-given privilege to those who are of the faith. You've heard it said before on TV commercials, right? Membership has its privileges. Well, in the church, your membership is the privilege. Being a member of the church is a God-given privilege granted by His grace. It's not a right. And even more, and even though that, that, that this is a very unpopular point of view, what we need to understand is this privilege can and should be revoked under certain circumstances. I'll say that again, too. There are certain circumstances where membership in the local church can and should be revoked in order to maintain a healthy church because the church belongs to God. Now, the reason why I emphasize this truth that the church belongs to him, and the fact that, that it is to do what he says, and that we belong to it and, it, and it doesn't belong to us. And the reason why we emphasize these things is the fact that there's just so many different flawed views of the church in the world around us. And if we're going to, to be the instrument of truth that God is calling us to be, that God has ordained for us to be, if we're going to be all that God has ordained for us to, to be and do, we need to fully embrace the foundational truths about the church. 
which is the truth that we're not a club. We're not here to entertain. We're not here simply to, to give people a sense of community. We're not here to perpetually be a handout to those who see the church as a resource to meet their needs. We, as a church, are to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth. We are to be the guardians and the heralds of the life-saving truth of the gospel. You see, the purpose of the church is to glorify God through worldwide worship. That's your first fill-in if you're keeping track. The purpose of the church is to glorify God through worldwide worship. That's why we were given the Great Commission, because we were called to evangelize the lost, baptize them into the church, and, dis and, and then disciple them to go out into the world and do the same thing until disciples are made all over the world. The goal is the creation of God's people across the world coming together in worship of Him. That's the purpose of the church, to glorify God through worldwide worship. Then the mission of the church, the mission of the church is to facilitate the Great Commission. To facilitate the Great Commission. What we need to realize is the Great Commission is given to all believers. And the church exists as God's instrument to facilitate that work. The church is the hub of disciple-making activity and trains and equips believers to go out individually into the world to fulfill the Great Commission through church planters and missionaries and individuals who go live their lives. And then the objective of the church that accomplished that is to defend orthodoxy, declare the gospel, and disciple believers. Defend orthodoxy, declare the gospel, disciple believers. That's what the church is to do. It defends the truth that has been passed down to us from the apostles, and it continually declares the message of the gospel because that's the foundation of all of our hope, and that it is to educate and equip and train believers to be the Christ followers who join Jesus on his mission to save sinners and make more disciples. And that's what God created the church for. That's why God has knitted us together corporately into one body. We are to gather together to worship God as a pattern locally and globally. And we gather together in order to grow and mature as disciples and as disciple makers. You are both. Did you know that, brothers and sisters? You are both disciples and disciple makers. And yes, part of, being, part of that is being a loving community. And part of that is meeting people's physical needs. And part of that is serving the world around us and enjoying wonderful music. Praise the Lord for that. I enjoyed, the, I, I enjoyed singing with, with Matt and McKaylee and, and Christine. And at times, hopefully, the, the, the sermons are uplifting. But those are the byproducts and the benefits of being part of the church. But that's not why we, believe, why we believers are made members of the church. That's not why we belong to the church. Now, the reason why I took the time to unpack that this morning is because in our text today, we're going to see four important truths about the church that are related to this. Right? And we need to understand these truths as members of the church. Four truths that will help us to have a more biblical understanding of, of the church. And I will be upfront with you. Some of these might challenge you. Some of them 
some of these truths might even be hard to hear. In fact, I maybe should have renamed this series, First Timothy, you know I love you, right? <laughs> some of these truths might conflict with your emotions. Some of these truths might conflict with your upbringing or even some of your old church traditions. But I want you to understand, it is these truths, they're foundational to us fully grasping what the church is, what the church is for, and what the church is to do as God Himself has ordained for it too. And so with that in mind, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 18. And as you make your way that way, let me just give you the context or remind you of kind of where we've been so far. The church in Ephesus at this point was in trouble. It, was allow, it had allowed unqualified leaders to take over, and, they were, and those leaders were teaching false doctrines. And as a result, the church was beginning to experience a number of behavioral issues that was damaging their witness internally and externally. Right? It was a church that once was focused on the gospel. It had lost its theological footing and was drifting away in error. The church was quickly becoming something other than what God had ordained for it to be, and it was losing its witness in the world. And I promise you, if a church loses its witness in the world, that church is not long for the world. And so after visiting the, this church in Ephesus, Paul leaves Timothy there to make things right. And after leaving Timothy, Paul moves on to Macedonia, and he takes some time and he writes Timothy a letter. And in this letter, Paul orders Timothy, the first thing is to put an end to the false teaching. Timothy is given authority by Paul to order these false teachers to stop teaching. And then after that, Paul explains that these men that are, that, are, that are teaching these things, they're not doing so because they love God or love other people. They're doing this because they want to be important men. They want to be teachers of the law. They want to be celebrities. They want to be well-known. They want to be well-thought of. They want to be seen as the experts. But these men were not only morally unqualified, they were also theologically unqualified because they didn't even know the law, as Paul says. Right? They didn't know what the law was for, and they didn't even know how to use the law. These men had no business, not in any regards, leading the church. Now, this discussion of the law, if you remember, causes Paul to kind of digress momentarily and talk about the law and, he, and explain what the law was for, which then causes him to reflect on his own life and remember what Christ has done for him even though that he is the worst kind of sinner. Well, in today's text, Paul, what we're going to see is he's coming back to his main point. He's, the digression is over now. He's coming back to the main thrust of what he's trying to get Timothy to do, which is, which is to get the church back on track and on its the theological footing. And the first thing is putting an end to this false teaching. And so in verse 18, Paul says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. And what I want you to notice is that Paul's tone grows in strength from the beginning of this letter to now. You need to see that like, there's a sense of, of urgency that's growing now. If you remember when Paul first began to talk to Timothy, he said, as I urged you, in, in verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Paul began by saying that I urged you. And this urging was a strong urging, but it was, it was friendly. It was a friendly kind of push to do something. Well, now Paul says, even more explicitly, he says that this charge I've entrusted to you, right? This reveals that Timothy's job is, is something Paul, right, is not just urging him to do. It's something he is commanding him to do. He is giving him a direct 
command to do this. In fact, the word charge here, as we've talked about before, is a military command. Paul, as his superior, is giving Timothy a direct order. And that direct order is to put an end to false teaching. Now, we spent some time talking about why that's important before. But notice he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Now, there is a whole lot of stuff to deal with in this one sentence. I want you first notice that Paul says, Timothy, my child. Again, this is a repeated statement. In fact, what you, what you see in this, this text here is actually a summary of what he actually said before. But he says, my child. Verse 2, he says to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Two times in the span of 18 verses, Paul refers to Timothy as his child. And we know that Paul is not Timothy's dad. This is not what he's saying. Paul was his teacher and his mentor. Paul is the disciple maker, and Timothy is the disciple. And what Paul's expression reveals is that this is an important and very intimate relationship. The relationship between disciples and disciple makers is a very personal, intimate relationship. By the way, right, that is how we are to make disciples of the nations. This kind of relationship that Paul has with Timothy is the kind of relationships you need to be having with other people that you're discipling. It is one-on-one investing in the life of someone else. That is the Christian life. That is the Christian walk. That is how you change the world. You don't change the world by ending world hunger. You change the world by discipling someone individually, one-on-one. It's teaching and training and modeling and mentoring, much like parents do for their children. It is raising up another generation of believers, and it's all of our responsibility to do that. And this is the activity that we are all called to, to make disciples, which, by the way, is why we need a church to support us in this. We need one another. We need each other's perspective and experience. It is teaching and training and modeling and mentoring someone else. Paul calls Timothy a child to remind him that he is Paul's disciple, and Paul has taught him what he needs to do. Second, he connects Timothy's work to waging good warfare. This right here is a very common theme for Paul. And and the reason for that is because it's the truth that ministry, all ministry is warfare. It is spiritual warfare. All ministry is spiritual warfare from sweeping the floors here to passing out food, to witnessing someone in the street, to being a deacon in the church, to pastoring, to teaching little kids, to discipling your own children. All ministry is spiritual warfare. That's why Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. All ministry is spiritual warfare. We are at war with the forces of darkness. Christian, sometimes I think we forget that. I think we think that Christianity is about us and our life and feeling better about ourselves. 
Not that we actually forget the truth that we are enlisted now into a war, a battle with an enemy, a real enemy. We are at war with the devil. That's why Paul urges us to put on the armor of God. And our armor is what? The truth. Right? It is the gospel, it is righteousness, it is faith, it is our salvation, and our weapon is the word of God. Whenever we get involved in the work of the Lord, whenever we serve in whatever capacity, we are engaging in spiritual warfare. And Paul's reminding Timothy here that his commandment to put an end to this false teachers is part of that waging the good war, waging that warfare. This is how Timothy is to fight the enemy. Now, the third thing I want you to notice is Paul's expression here. He says, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Okay. In context, he says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. This is a really strange expression, right? If you just read that in English, you're going to go, what in the world are they talking about? It's strange because it seems kind of like out of left field. And really, if you just look at just this immediate text, there's not really a context of this passage to help us understand what Paul's talking about. What prophecies have been made about Timothy? What does, what does this have to do with warfare? What does this have to do with his assignment to put an end to false teaching? Now, because it, this is a bit obscure, I have read a number of speculative ideas of what Paul is saying here, I'm going to tell you, some people have just really vivid imaginations, okay? And there's a lot of strange explanations, and some of them really over-spiritualize the whole prophetic nature here spoken over Timothy. But, but fortunately for us, if we read a little bit more, you don't have to actually speculate too much because a bit further in the same letter in chapter 4, Paul actually gives us a clue what he's talking about. In chapter 4, Paul will tell Timothy, beginning in verse 11, he says, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Notice the word prophecy here. That is the connection that he's making. You see, what Paul's referring to when he talks about the prophecies made about Timothy, he's talking about an event that happened. He's talking about Timothy's ordination service as a pastor. This is when Paul and the other elders came together, other elders in a church laid hands on Timothy and ordained him to pastoral ministry, which obviously was his spiritual gift. That was what he was gifted to do. That's why he's doing what he's doing. That's why they talk about prophecies, right? The reason why they're talking about prophesying over Timothy is, is because their prophesying was a witness to the legitimacy of the gift that he was given as a pastor. They were testifying to the legitimacy of his call by God into the ministry. You see, what, what Paul is referring to is the fact that Timothy was called by God himself into the ministry. It, it was God who supernaturally called Timothy to be a pastor, right? And this call was evident in his life that other people in the church could see it. And it was on that basis then that the elders laid their hands upon Timothy and ordained him as a minister. And this detail brings up for us 
a truth that we need to get clear about, a truth that we need to defend together as a church. And that truth is this, the church is to ordain the leaders that God calls. That is the truth. The church is to ordain the leaders that God has called. And that for us gives us a couple of things that we need to understand. First of all, it is the church and only the church that has the God-given authority to ordain anyone for ministry. The church and the church alone is the, has the God-given right and authority to ordain anyone for ministry. Pastors, elders, deacons, evangelists, apologists, counselors, teachers, it doesn't matter the ministry. The Only the church has the authority to ordain someone as a minister. And by extension, then, all ministries in the church and outside of the church are to be done under the supervision of and the leadership of a local church. All Christian ministries are to be conducted in connection with and under the leadership of local churches. All ministries. The evangelist and pastor Paul Washer, his preaching and evangelism ministry and his, and his missionary ministry called Heart Cry, every bit of that is done under the authority of his local church. He is in submission to the elders of that church. Vodi Bakum. We've all heard of Brother Vodi. And by the way, praise the Lord, he is doing much better. Vodi Bakum's ministries, all of them, his work in Zambia as the, uh, the president of the African Christian University, all of his speaking ministry, his preaching, all of his writing ministries, all of that's performed under the leadership and the oversight of his local church, under which he is under the authority of the elders of that church. Founders Ministry which is, by the way, where we get our copies of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, is a ministry under the leadership of a local church. All ministries are to be done in connection with and under the authority of a local church. There have been times people have contacted me and say, hey, I have this ministry or I run that ministry and I do this as a ministry. And they ask, can we support them? And my first question is, is what church are you a part of? Well, I'm not really part of a church. Just on that basis alone, then I have to let them know up front, I can't support you. Because how do I know that you're even faithful in what you say you believe? There's, there's got to be somebody that's helping you and guiding you through this. And it's always been that way, by the way. In fact, the Apostle Paul operated his ministry, the Apostle Paul operated his ministry under the authority and the elders of the church in Antioch. Right? Paul was commissioned by and responsible to a local church. In Acts 14, we read about how Paul returned to his sending church in order to make a report to that church on the fruit of his activities. In, in, in Acts 14, beginning in verse uh, 26, it reads, And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. So it was this church that sent them. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how He had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, Paul himself was under the authority of a local church. His ministry was guided by the elders of another church. All ministries and ministers are to be under the authority of a local church somewhere. Because the church, and the church alone, has the God-given authority to ordain anyone for ministry. Seminaries are wonderful tools, but they do not have the authority to ordain people to pastoral ministry. 
Bible colleges, again, a wonderful tool in the Christian kingdom, but they do not ordain anybody for Christian ministry. And I shouldn't have to say this, but I'm going to say this. Online ordination services don't have the God-given authority to ordain anybody for anything. I had someone tell me that, that they were a pastor. And I said, really, where were you ordained? And they said, well, actually, I went to school at you know, this university, which I was familiar with. I said, cool. But I got ordained through this online service. I paid some money, and they gave me my ordination certificate. It says right here, see, I'm a Christian minister. That, that's not a real ordination, right? That, that's not a, you're, you're, he's not qualified as a pastor, right? Only churches can ordain people for ministry. Right? The church is to ordain those who God calls. And I want you to hear the second part of that. The church is to ordain leaders that God has called. This is an important criteria for us in our modern context because we live in a time where there are a lot of self-appointed, a lot of self-called pastors and ministers. We live in a time of theological shallowness that many people come to faith and they learn some things about the gospel and immediately think they are experts in the faith, and that somehow they're qualified to lead and teach. Just look at the internet, by the way. The internet's filled with relatively new Christians who come to faith, and somehow they think that they're qualified to, to teach and lead others, and they begin to speak and teach on things that they really don't know anything about, right? And, they, they, and they've not been ordained by God to do so. The, the internet is, there's a lot of good teaching, but it's a lot of bad teaching because so many self-appointed teachers are operating under no one's authority but their own. And even worse, many untrained self-appointed teachers end up starting home Bible studies and then become churches which, without any training or local church support. And, and unfortunately, their intentions might be good, but unsuspectingly, they lead people into error. In fact, did you know that just about every heretical group that's, that came out of the Great Awakening comes from a self-appointed, unordained teacher? Joseph Smith of the LDS Church. Charles Taze Russell of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Ellen G. White, a Seventh-day Adventist. Right? What do they have in common? They are all self-appointed right? and unordained by a Bible-believing, orthodox church. The church is the one who ordains those that God calls. Not those who just feel called, right? Not those who just feel qualified. Not those who feel like that they've got the gift of teaching. Not those who simply have a passion for God's word. The church is to ordain those that God actually manifestly calls. Well, what's the difference? The difference is the church is to examine potential ministers and see if they have actually been called by God into ministry, which means. There needs to be evidence that someone actually is actually been called by God for that. Not simply, hey, I just want to be a pastor. Right? Not just simply, I just love God and love His people. Not just simply somebody that's willing to serve in ministry. And believe me, if there's a temptation in, in the, the church world, if somebody says they're willing to do a ministry, is to put them in a ministry somewhere. The church is to, to see the evidence of the fact that a person has been indeed called by God for that purpose. Because I'm going to be honest with you. There are a lot of people who believe that they have the gift of preaching and teaching, but have no business actually leading a church because they're not called by God. If they don't meet the qualifications that are set out in chapter 3, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, or there just isn't a discernible 
evidence that God is actually calling them to that, that station. I know a man who told me, I believe that God called me into pastoral ministry. And he's got very strong theological opinions. Spends a lot of time on YouTube listening to people. And he thinks that God's raising him up to lead a church somewhere. And, but the problem is, is he's been unfaithful to his wife. And he's prone to conflict with other people. In fact, there's been times it's even led to, to physical altercations. Now, he believes, he keeps telling me, in his heart, he believes God is calling him to pastoral ministry. But as a church, there's no way we, would, we could ordain him because we, we couldn't discern that that would be the truth. As a church, we couldn't do that. It's the local church's job to be discerning whether or not God's call is real. Right? Which then leads... Right, which means the church must, the church must attain a certain level of maturity and discernment. Because the pastor is not the only one that's the church. We as a church must be able to reach that level of discernment. Which then leads to the second truth. The second truth is that God is the church is to be made up of regenerate, born-again believers. I know that sounds like an obvious thing to say. It sounds obvious that, the, that a person needs to actually be a believer to be a member of the church. But the problem is, the truth is, that, that just because a person makes a profession of faith at some point in their life, and just because somebody actually got dipped or baptized, doesn't mean that a person's actually a born-again believer. Right? And, and I know this might hurt some people's feelings, and, I, and I, this is one of those subjects I even hate talking about, but it's the truth that we have to really get our heads wrapped around, especially considering we have lived in the church growth movement since the early 20th century, where the focus has been about numbers. It's been about how many people can you get in the church every Sunday, how many confessions can you get, how many baptisms can you do, numbers, 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 right? And then you add to it the theological slide of the church that has led to the idea of easy believism, the idea that if a person will just come forward at an altar call and make a profession of faith, that they're saved no matter what happens in their life, no matter what their life looks like. No matter if they continue to live in egregious, unrepentant sin before God. No matter if they never bear fruit at all in their lives. In fact, this, this morning, I was listening to an online pastor, and he said something. And he, just, he just said, if you'll just simply pray the words, Jesus, I believe that you are God, and I invite you in my heart, you're now part of the club. What? What? Now, I understand his heart. I understand where he's going. Because... You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's all that saves you. But understand, just saying those words doesn't qualify that. Just because a person prays a prayer, just because a person made a, was made a member of the church at some point, doesn't mean they were actually born again. The fact is, churches all across the land have members on the rolls that are not truly Christian, much less mature in discerning. In fact, Tom Askell, the president of Founders Ministry, he wrote an article on this very subject, and he noted that in 2015, the Southern Baptist Convention boasts 15 million members. 15 million members. But the average church attendance is about one-third of that. Okay? One-third come to church. We're not talking about visitors, right? We're not talking about you know, people who just attend occasionally. We're talking about people who claim to be born again, believers who are sold out for the cause of Christ. One-third actually attend a regular worship service during the year. And this doesn't take into consideration 
a large percentage of these people are made up of mega churches in the Southern Baptist Convention. And nothing, again, I don't have a personal beef against mega churches except those who, who teach like, you know, just try on Jesus like a, like a t-shirt, right? Mega churches who, who work really hard to make people feel very comfortable and entertained. Mega churches who use the pulpit on Sunday to, to talk about eight ways to have a better life rather than calling people to repent and believe the gospel and, and showing them all the time of their need for redemption. The fact not everyone who claims to be a believer is. And the church has a responsibility to make sure that its members are truly born-again believers to the best of their ability. Because the members of the church are the church. Each member has an integral part of the church. And it is the church that collectively has to be mature enough to be discerning enough to be able to determine whether or not a pastor or an elder has indeed been called by God. It is the members of the church who give consent to the ordination of elders and deacons, which means members must truly be born again. They must be spirit-led for real. As the 1689 Confession of Faith, um, again, the same chapter on the church, and paragraph 6 mentions, the members of these churches are saints by calling, visibly displaying and demonstrating in and by their profession and life, their obedience to the call of Christ. They willingly agree to live together according to Christ's instructions, giving themselves to the Lord and to one another by the will of God with the stated purpose of following the ordinances of the gospel. They're supposed to be demonstrable believers, right? Our Baptist faith and message, the one that we use to, to say you need to believe these things to be a member here, in paragraph 6, that states, a New Testament church of the Lord Jesus is an autonomous local congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in faith and fellowship of the gospel, observing two ordinances of Christ, governed by the law, exercising the gifts the rights and privileges invested in them by His Word and seeking to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. The church is to be made up of members who are truly, sincerely born again. That way the church can do the things that God is calling the church to do, like ordaining leaders for the church. And so Paul continues and says, this Charge, I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, because you were ordained by the, the church and gifted as a pastor, that by them that you may work good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Now, it's, what's important is that, again, this parallels what Paul said earlier in verses 5 and 6. In verses 5 and 6, he says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart. And look at this, a good conscience and a sincere faith. See the connection there. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. Right? And then Paul says again here, by rejecting this, swerving from these, by rejecting this, there's a connection here. Rejecting this, a good conscience and a sincere faith, they have made shipwreck of their faith. Now, the reality is Paul is not talking about these people losing their salvation. This is not something that, that, that we believe, and this is not what he's saying. When Paul said, made shipwreck of their faith, right? Paul, because these false teachers 
our false converts didn't actually have faith, right? It's not losing their faith, right? What Paul means here, then, is something more when he says make shipwreck of their faith. One commentary I, I read, um, I think, believe, I, I believe gets at the point of this. He says that they, they make ship, making shipwreck of their faith, but what is, is what they're doing is they're making a shipwreck of the faith they claim to have. Or in other words, since they have wandered away into vain discussions and false theologies, they have made shipwreck of the orthodox doctrines of their faith, which stands to reason, because that's what these false teachers do. They destroy the orthodox doctrines and the theology of the Christian faith, which then leads to the third thing that we need to grab hold of, and that's the fact that the church, as the pillar and buttress of the truth, the church is to protect its doctrine. The church is to protect its doctrine. Remember, the objective of the church is to declare the gospel, disciple believers, and defend orthodoxy. Right? It's, it's the responsibility of the church as a whole to protect the doctrines of the church. Because if we don't do that, if we don't stand up for the truth, if we don't stand up for orthodoxy, the church is prone to be led away into vain discussions and false teachings and false ideologies and theologies. We're seeing it right now with the, with the introduction of Marxism into the church. People are embracing it wholesale because they've lost sight of the orthodox doctrines of the church. This, by the way, is, is why Paul calls the Ephesians years earlier to maturity in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4. In chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, he writes... And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, those are the, the leaders of the church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. So the goal is maturity, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. And here's the purpose, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. The church, as God's instrument for the hope of the world, must be mature enough to protect its foundational truths. Otherwise, we get swept away like everyone else. The church collectively is to protect the doctrines of the faith. Well, how do we do that? Number one, by having regenerate church membership of people who are really believers. Number two is by ordaining qualified leaders that have clearly been called by God. Number three, by learning and understanding and living by the church's statement of faith. We, a long time ago, adopted the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message as the essential doctrines of our church that we all collectively say, yes, that's what we believe in. This is the standard by which we test all the other teachings and doctrines that we encounter. Number four, we learn and understand the historic confessions of our faith, particularly the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. This, by the way, is required for the elders to read and know of our church and for, for them to su substantially agree with in that confession. Right? Because that confession really unpacks the, un the essential doctrines further and gives greater detail for our church to have a theological footing on which to stand where we're less likely, if we're all working together for those same truths, we're less likely to drift away into, into common error. 
And number five is the matter of each member of the church developing and growing their personal spiritual disciplines. Every church member should be reading their Bible, having time in prayer, studying the Word, serving, attending theology classes and things like that, reading books. Right? We together have a responsibility to grow in our understanding of our faith so that we can protect the doctrines of the church. And so then Paul tells Timothy, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over Satan, that they may, have, they may learn not to blaspheme. The first thing to notice is that in verse 3, Paul calls false teachers certain persons, but here in this text, he names certain persons by name. Hymenaeus and Alexander. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul mentions Hymenaeus again in the context of his false teaching. He says in, in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, beginning verse 6, he says, um, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and, will, and, will, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth. Notice again this expression, swerving. Swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Paul reminds Timothy that the false teaching is destructive and that these false teachers have rejected a good conscience and a sincere faith, and they've made shipwreck of the doctrines of the church. And among these false teachers are two people that Paul has already had to deal with. Right? Hymenaeus and Philetus. Well, actually, Hymenus and Alexander here. And again, we encounter Alexander a little bit later on. And notice how he says he deals with these false teachers. He says he handed them over to Satan that they may not, they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, again, there's a lot of strange ideas about what Paul is talking about here when he says, you know, handing them over to Satan. But the truth is, it's actually clear what he's saying. What Paul is talking about is he's he put these men out of the church. That's what he's saying. That's what he's talking about. He's removed these men from, from, the, from the church, which is the kingdom of God, and pushed them right back out into the world, which is the kingdom of Satan. Right? They are cast out of God's blessed family, right? which should, by the way, should remind us that being part of the family is a blessing. And this right here also brings up an important but a very unpopular truth, and that is the church. If it is to be what the church is called to be, if the church is to do what it's called to do, and if we're, we're truly to be the family of God and the pillar of the buttress of the truth, then the church is to discipline its members and leaders when they are in sin. Not something people like to talk about. But it's an inescapable truth. If the church is to be what God calls it to be, and the church must bear the responsibility of dis disciplining its members and leaders if they are in sin. And this right here doesn't sit well with a lot of people. It just doesn't. There are some who believe that, that church discipline is a sign of a legalistic church, and it can be for sure if it's taken to the wrong extreme and done with the wrong heart. There are some people who believe that, that, that people should just be allowed to remain as members of the church no matter how egregious their sin is. There are some people who hate the idea of pastors and elders and, and members of the church actually confronting people in their sin. 
It's an uncomfortable business, I promise. But these are all emotional but unbiblical responses to to an important truth. The church is to discipline its members and leaders when there is sin. Because the church discipline is required for a healthy church. It's required for a healthy church. As Mark Dever said, I'm going to read his words one more time. Biblical church discipline is simple obedience to God and a simple confession that we need help. We cannot live the Christian life alone. Our purpose in church discipline is positive for the individual disciplined, for other Christians as they see the real danger of sin, for the health of the church as a whole, for the corporate witness of the church to the outside. Most of all, our holiness is to reflect the holiness of God. It should mean something to be a member of the church, not for our pride's sake, but for God's namesake. Biblical church discipline is a mark of a healthy church. The truth is, church discipline is good for the believers of the church. It reminds believers the consequences of sin. Believers may be saved from the eternal punishment of sin, but there are still temporal consequences of sin that still happen as a result. Twice, We've had to exercise church discipline on members in our church for inappropriate behavior towards members of the opposite sex. Some of the hardest times in my life as a pastor. But as a church, we have a responsibility to make it clear that such inappropriate behavior towards members of the opposite sex will not be tolerated in any fashion. The church is to be a safe place for everyone safe and free from any such kind of abuse. And by faithfully and responsibly applying church discipline, we set the standard to remind others that sin like this has consequences. But another thing to keep in mind is that church discipline is good for the one being disciplined too. Notice what Paul says here. I've handed them over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. You see, he didn't just say that he was removing them from fellowship because they're dirty, rotten scoundrels and they just needed to be gone. It was about teaching the ones being disciplined the truth. It was about, it was about bringing to them the truth about repentance and faith. Paul didn't kick these men out just to kick them out. He removed them from the church so that they would learn through difficulty and through trial and through testing not to blaspheme God, not to, to be unbelieving, not to bear false witness, but to repent and believe the truth. Paul removed them from the church so they would, they would experience the full consequences and weight of their sin that they might then come to their senses and see their need for Christ. Now, this is something that we all have got to come to terms with. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do for someone is, is to allow them to experience the full weight of the consequences of their sin. If anybody has had somebody who's been an addict in their life, they know what I'm talking about. And sometimes the most selfish thing we can do is cover for people and try to protect people from the discipline and the consequences of their actions. My, my, my brother my, my, my brother had become addicted to meth many years ago, and he was living a life that was spiraling out of control, and it was threatening to take everyone down around him. But my dad kept trying to help him and give him a place, and he kept covering for him and kept giving him money. But finally, it just got to the point my dad couldn't do it anymore. And finally, my dad had to cut my brother loose which, by the way, he just, we just recently talked about, and he cried after, after years. We're talking about like years. 
He said it was the hardest thing I ever had to do. He had to kick my brother out onto the street, off the property. But that was the catalyst. That was the thing that finally, where my brother could finally see the full weight of what he was doing and, and face the consequences of his actions, that finally he got to the place where he, he could see like he needed real help. It would happen to be that moment then that I was able to share with him the gospel and that he received it and repented and believed and his life completely changed. My brother came to Christ as a result. And since that time, my dad and my brother have been reconciled and have a wonderful relationship. Church discipline works in, in the same way if the church disciplines a member for their, it, they're doing it for their own good, especially if it's done in the right spirit and with the right heart. Right? Even if that means removing them from membership, even if that means putting them out of fellowship altogether, the church does so for the good of the church and the good of the one being disciplined. And the church discipline protects the witness of the church. Right? There are few things that harm the effectiveness of the church and the world around us more than the hypocrisy of those in the church. There are few things that stink any more or any worse than a church scandal where leaders have been covering for one another in egregious sin. Right? And it's not just reserved for the Roman Catholic Church. We're seeing it in evangelical circles as well as some of those things come to light and entire churches just fall apart from the inside out. When members of the church and leaders are allowed to live in unrepentant sin, when churches don't take seriously the issue of discipline, they're unwittingly creating a stain upon the body of Christ. If we're going to have any credibility in the world around us, we must walk our talk. If we call the world to faith and repentance, we ought to likewise practice the same with our own members and leaders of the church. That, by the way, that, that way we protect the witness of the church and the theological foundation on which we stand. Now, with that, I just want to briefly mention to you that Jesus himself is the author of this doctrine. Jesus himself is the author of church discipline, and he's the one who gives us the guidelines and how to apply it. We find that in Matthew. He says, it, he says, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that by every, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen then, then tell the church. And if he refuses even to listen to even the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, put him out of the church. Right? But notice how Jesus says this. Right? They're to be like a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, right? a sinner. Well, how, do you, how are we to treat sinners? How are we to treat sinners? With love and compassion and grace in proclaiming to them the truth of the gospel and calling them to repent and believe the gospel. You see, when a church disciplines a member and if it comes to the point you have to put them out, we don't excommunicate them like a pariah. That's where the church needs to go out and actively engage with them and love them and show them the love of Christ and pro profess to them the truth and call them to repent and believe that they may be restored. You see, the goal of church discipline is to protect the church and to bring correction to everyone, including the one being disciplined. The goal isn't to just kick people out. The goal is to restore them to God. And the only way for us to be able to do that 
is to protect our doctrine, make sure that our church is made up of true believers and have the maturity to ordain the leaders that God has called us to ordain. Church family, I want you to see in this, we're more than just a gathering of people who come together on Sunday just to see each other's faces and to listen to a message. We are all part of this living organism of the body of Christ. We are the living stones that make up the household of God. And all of us have a solemn responsibility to grow in our understanding of these truths so that we together can be the church that God is calling us to be, to do the things that God is calling us to do, to be the witness that He's calling us to be in the world. And that way we collectively can go out into the world and storm the gates of hell and set the captives free. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.